everyone. My name is Ashley Lynn Priori, and I will be your host for Women in Politics. Women in Politics is a new uh, series that we are starting to showcase all of the powerful, amazing women who are ensuring that we have a democracy to live in. These women are from all over, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Washington, D.C., and we're so excited to really kick off this new, this new podcast and this new YouTube channel. Today we have the distinct honor of, of starting off our Women in Politics uh, podcast with someone who, while is not an elected official, is doing some significant work in local government, Dr. Dana Brown who is the Pennsylvania Center for Women in Politics Executive Director at Chatham University, and she's also the Assistant Professor of Political Science. Dr. Dana Brown began her tenure as the Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Center for Women in Politics and Assistant Professor of Political Science at Chatham University in July of 2010. And Dr. Brown earned her doctorate in American politics and women in politics at Rutgers University, where she also received her master's degree in political science. And Dr. Brown has done extensive research in women in politics, in political psychology, political media, and also political participation by women of color. She is a very active member in the community, currently serving on Governor Tom Wolf's Pennsylvania Commission for Women. And she has also been recognized widely for her work, specifically with the Obama White House. Um, and he invited her to participate in a conference on girls' leadership and civic education. So we are so excited to have her join us for a special discussion about women in politics, what it means to be in politics as a woman, and most importantly, the election results for 2020. So could you tell us a bit about the work that you do at Chatham and you know how you actually got involved in this work with the center? Sure, Ashley. Um, so the Pennsylvania Center for Women in Politics, we really focus on educating and empowering women for public leadership. And we do this in a couple of different ways. So one that I think most people are familiar with is through our educational programs, which are for students, but also open to the community as well. So we have a couple signature programs uh, that the Pittsburgh community might be most familiar with. It's the um, Ready to Run campaign training program, uh, which we've been running now for about a decade and have hundreds and hundreds of alums who have gone through the training and either hopped on a campaign as a volunteer or they themselves have chosen to run for office, which is fantastic. We have the new leadership Pennsylvania Summer Institute, which is really focused on the female undergraduate population and trying to plant that seed earlier on and thinking about public leadership. And that's a six day residential, pre-COVID world residential uh, public leadership boot camp, And we focus on professionalization skills and networking and trying to get young women um, engaged in all three branches of government. And they also focus on a social action project, which is like a public policy issue that they can really have a deep dive on. Um, and then the third one is the Elsie Hillman Chair in Women in Politics, where we bring a pretty well-known um, woman in politics or in the field. It could be political journalism, even outside of uh, 
actual politics itself. And they come to campus and they meet with students and they give a, you know, lecture or maybe they talk to me like a little moderated Q&A and talk and bring, raise some consciousness about women in politics. Um, because I know you know, Ashley, but Pennsylvania and Southwestern PA in, in particular, we don't fare too well in terms of gender diversity in public leadership. So, I mean, that's part of it, right, is our mission is designed to try to combat um, a lot of what's going on in terms of cultural and political challenges to women in politics. And so that's one way that we do it is through the educational programs. And another piece, which is a little bit more under the radar, is just like the data collection and research in terms of women in politics. Because if you wanna make a change, you kind of have to know what you're starting with. Like what's our baseline, where, where are we and how can we improve? So that's sort of the second uh, bucket, if you will. And then the third, of course, is really much more focused on our student population. And we're like the primary site for civic engagement on Chatham's campus. Absolutely. And, and Chatham, like we know, used to be um, an all women's um, college. And so what do you think has been the impact of having such a female centric um, initiative on campus, especially when a lot of the population at Chatham is young women? Well, I think, I mean, obviously, I think it's great. It's one of the things that actually attracted me to Chatham 10 years ago was that at that point, 10 years ago, it was still a, a women's college. And that really spoke to me. I think that it's a wonderful environment um, when you're able just to focus on women. Um, but to Chatham's credit, even once we went co-ed, they made the lead, you know, the leadership made the decision to retain a lot of our identity in terms of developing women's leadership. And that's not just in politics. We have we have a wonderful center for women's entrepreneurship um, that is doing wonderful things. And whether it's young entrepreneurs or more seasoned uh, entrepreneurs, they do a great deal. Um, and we have a newer women's institute um, that focuses on like gender equity at large through a, a couple of different programs. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, I give Chatham a lot of credit that they decided that women's leadership was so important to that, to the identity of the institution um, that they also were going to ensure that, you know, the young men who are now matriculating are also going to have this value and they're going to learn about it. And it's just going to be an ever-present piece of of our mission. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting too, when we talk about like, because you've been doing this for, for about 10 years, um, you know, how politics has changed. I mean, 2010, um, we were experiencing something totally different than 2016 and now. So um, when you look at the rise of women in politics and what Chatham has done, um, do you see somewhat of like correlations in Pennsylvania to what the center has done and your impact and more women getting involved in politics specifically in Pennsylvania? Well, so I'll say when I started 10, about 10 years ago, um, I think if I remember in terms of the General Assembly, the percentage of women in the General Assembly was, I'm going to say something like 17 to 19%. Uh, so something pretty, pretty low. Um, and so when I was developing the Ready to Run campaign training program, I'll be honest, part, 
you know, it's, it's a one day, just to be clear, like the, the ready to run program is one day kind of one-stop shop. It is open to everybody. There's no litmus test, whether it's public policy or party ID or anything, frankly, right? You can come learn more, be a volunteer. You could come be a candidate. We open the door to everybody. And that was intentional on my part, frankly. I wanted to make sure that it was this idea, this notion of campaigning and running for office should be inclusive. It is not meant to be exclusive. And so I wanted to cat, like throw the biggest net possible right out to the community and say that we're here to support you. Um, and, you know, I think it, I think it kind of worked, right? We have a number of alums now who have gone through the training. Some went through the training knowing that they were going to run like immediately after, right? So that's kind of a different experience of how you're, what you're learning and engaging with. Some went through the training knowing that maybe five years from now they would position themselves to run. And yeah, I mean, from that we have folks in the state legislature that came out of the program. We have a woman in Congress, Chrissy Houlihan, who you know, came to the Philadelphia training in 2017 with her mom, knowing that she was gonna run, um, you know, coming off of that, you know, March, um, the Women's March down in DC. So we've, and judges too, I shouldn't leave the judges out because we oftentimes focus so much on the, the legislative and executive that we forget about the judiciary, but we've also had some judges um, take the training and, and go on to run. So I think we may have played a small part, um, not even so much with the training. I think frankly, just raising the consciousness of it really matters, talking about it openly, questioning some old time practices, you know, trying to um, create a political intervention of sorts, just kind of like just challenging some notions. Uh, makes people think, you know, and wonder, well, why have we done it this way? Or if there are going to be women running in the primary, you know, frankly, I, I do know that sometimes women have a higher standard uh, to meet in order to get some endorsements and so on. And then, you know, it's sort of my job to point it out, you know, name it, change it, and uh, try to create intervention when I can. But we're just one of many, you know, we may be one of the older, older ones, right? We've been doing like ready to run for 10 years, but there are some new ones too um, that I like to think, you know, we might've sort of inspired in a way, like we saw some success and people want more success. And I think that's, that's great. We all want more women in politics. So I'm, I think that's wonderful. Absolutely. And, and, you know, what are some of the notions that you've seen about people um, um, questioning more women in, in politics? Like I remember when um, in the, the school board race with um, Pam Harmon, Anna Batista and myself, there was a couple people that said, wow, there's three women running um, for school board. I guess that makes sense since there's so many women in, in who are teachers or who are in quotes like caregivers. Um, but then when you have people like Summer Lee, um, they, they might say that, oh, she is, is too in quotes like loud. I've heard people say that a lot. So um, what are some of the things that you've seen when you're having these discussions about women in politics and the notions that people have? Uh, so, I mean, there are some gender stereotypes at play for sure. I mean, 
there is this immediate assumption that women are doing better in terms of school boards, like in terms of running and winning. Although the last time we took a look at school boards, the composition was actually still heavily male. Um, like when we took a look at like all the school boards across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, women were like maybe 38%, something like that. So still not even half. Um, it's been a handful of years. So maybe that has improved as well. But even at that moment in time, I was like, yeah, I kind of knew this was going to happen. There's just this assumption being made without any data to bear. Um, so then, of course, once we did the data collection, that kind of broke everything up. Um, there, you know, there are still some assumptions about caregiving and expectations. And so traditionally, you when you when you see women running, they tend to be older. They tend to be older, meaning like fifty plus. Um, some women are moms. Some women are not moms. But when you look at the data, a lot of women are. A lot of women are, and so there's assumptions made about women's time and the expectation, well, they must have a full plate at home, whether it's their kids, their pets, their aging parents, that they're doing caretaking. And so I actually heard from a younger woman, I mean, she was in her late 30s, you know, um, and she was running for a local office and she does have children. And it was, um, people were, people were questioning. So what are you going to do? How are you going to handle this office and handle your kids? So then she made the strategic decision to do door knocking, right, pre-COVID, door knocking with her husband. So then actually, it, I mean, frankly, a little sad, right, commentary. Not sad for her, but I feel like sad commentary for us culturally that she had to make this decision. So then she could turn to her husband and say, what say you, honey, you know, you're gonna take the kids to baseball and soccer and he was there to cheer her on. And that she said was effective with her constituents. That was effective. Um, I would, I mean, that's the thing. I don't prescribe to people how to campaign, right? Every campaign's different. I don't know everyone's district your district is gonna be different than the next, next district over. You have to make the decision for yourself and your constituents, how you were to handle that. Um, but at the campaign training, for example, like we would, we would address it. We know that unfortunately there are still some challenges um, based on gender identity. I mean, there was a younger, right? In her thirties again, uh, mother actually running for state rep in this cycle and, um, Sometimes she had her kids with her and she was, you know, and I said to her, you know, I think it's fine to normalize. <laughs> I think it's fine to normalize these things. You should not shy away from who you are, right? But she also got some pushback for that. But something tells me she very well might've gotten pushback even if they weren't with her. Like that's the double bind, right? That women face. It's you bring your kids, you get some pushback. You don't bring your kids who's taking care of them. So you're sort of in a no win situation and it's really up to the candidate herself, really how she chooses to challenge it and confront it. And again, I think part of it is just 
so driven based on the family, right? The person who she is and the, and the district. But that yeah, does happen. Yeah, yeah. I've noticed that a lot too. I mean, looking at some of the races that were happening in Pennsylvania, I mean, a lot of the women running for, um, for PA house, you know, they had, um, their kids were grown and they were becoming grandparents and they talked about, you know, having a better future for, for their grandchildren. Um, and then a lot of the women, um, have younger kids and they've got that question a lot. Well, how are you going to balance everything? And that's not something that men who were the same age, um, got that question. Like, how are you going to balance, you know, raising your kids? Yeah. And it's just frustrating that we still have that, um, the, those barriers and assume that the women are taking care of, of the kids. Yeah, it is a shame. Um, but also there is some truth to it, even to, in today's standards in terms of, you know, right, we're in a pandemic and, Thankfully, my kids are in like face-to-face -face school. I have a two and a half year old that is in preschool and she goes to school. I'm a kindergartner um, that we actually chose to send back to the preschool because they were doing face-to-face -face, um, versus some other options. Um, but I can tell you like as a working mom, um, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of shuffling around my schedule in order to accommodate the kids' schedule. I have a great husband and partner, but I think he would even admit to you, well, I know he's admitted to me, um, that it hasn't exactly been even. But data, whether it's New York Times reports, Washington Post, so between the anecdotal stories and then the actual real data of women dropping out of the workforce purposely in order to support their kids like virtual learning environment at home, um, that is still happening, right? That's a real fact, but that does not make it okay to ask a woman those questions on the campaign trail. Uh, but I just wanna be clear that we don't live in some completely equal society. Like I don't want folks to think, oh, this woman thinks that everything is so equal. No, it's not but that still doesn't make it okay to be asking those questions. Absolutely. And, you know, there are a lot of young women impacted by um, Vice President-elect Harris's win and just the impact that had not only for, for young women of color, but um, really women in general who haven't seen that yet. But it was really interesting because when people were describing her accomplishments, um, a lot of people were like, you know, she doesn't have kids. And did that, you know, make it easier for her to run when she ran for senator? Like I was reading, I should never read through comments on Facebook, but of course I did when I was seeing this. And, you know, she is a mom. She's, um, you know, she's still raising, um, still raising kids, but people were questioning whether not having kids made it easier for her to have, in quotes, like time to do this. And so I was curious about your reaction to hearing that. Oh gosh, um, I'm glad <laughs> I did not hear that. I'm glad I did not read the Facebook comments, I guess, on that. I'm glad to be in my bubble on that one. Uh, yeah, whether Kamala Harris was a mom, a stepmom, not a mom, to me, um, it's not entirely relevant. Um, although I know that some people probably do appreciate it because they can understand, like, as a stepmom, you're juggling your kid's schedule in this way. Um, Right, like you can find some kind of, but um, yeah, to, I, <laughs> you're asking me, as a political scientist, I tend to 
not have too many feelings about these things. Um, I much prefer data, but um, I mean, one, I just, I mean, it's a wonderful moment. It felt good to me. I have two daughters. I felt like I was like shoving the information in front of my kindergartner's face <laughs> because um, during the primary season, I'll just say we were walking by some signs, um, yard signs. Um, we were on a little walk and we started talking about leadership and running for office again. And my older daughter pretty, you know, astutely reminded me like, well, but there's never been any girl presidents or whatever she said to me um, about, about the names on the signs. I, I forget exactly what it was, but you know, now we have, you know, now we have a woman vice president. And so I can assert that to her. And I think that that does completely matter to her. Uh, motherhood or no, no motherhood. I don't know. I don't want to get stuck on it too much. I mean, I have to admit I'm a mom, but if you actually were to ask me about like my identity, it's not, that's not as high up on my list. Um, but it can be for other people. And that's, that's fine, you know, that's that's great. I don't know where it is on her list. Um, it, I actually do get the sense that it's pretty important to her, but um, to each her own. That's the th I, I mean, I don't even know how to answer it because it's like, I'm very excited for America, mm -hmm. for the world to see that we can have a woman lead one heartbeat away from the presidency. And hopefully the next step is to finally break that final glass ceiling and, and have a female president finally hopefully that is really the next step to this but but it feels it feels good it feels good mm -hmm. absolutely and I mean you know I I was so cautiously optimistic even now I mean we saw what happened in 2016 and I know there were a lot of feelings about um Secretary Clinton and 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 everything but for a lot of young women I mean she represented that wow, she, this woman is so close to becoming president. And even when I was looking at, um, you know, Biden compared to her and, and, and what was happening with the um, electoral college votes and, and the data and things, because he was a man, it made it 10 times easier in my opinion to run. Um, but I'm sort of curious from your perspective, uh, people saying that people really don't like Biden, they really don't like Trump, but they have to pick the lesser evil in quotes. And then when you compare it to when Hillary ran, people are like, people don't like Hillary and they don't like Donald Trump. So picking again, the, the, what's gonna be, what's gonna be better. Um, I, I just generally think that because Biden was an older white man, it made it, it, made it easier. But um, what are your thoughts about that? So I, I actually get the impression based on some polling data, not that polls are accurate. <laughs> Um, but my impression actually has always been that a lot of people do like Joe Biden. I think my impression is his personal story, frankly, um, and the amount of pain in his personal story is compelling no matter who you are. And no matter what party ID you are, you can understand that this man has character and grit and an optimism for a new day that is unmatched. And I think that people are at least willing to see that part of him as a person. And then you can get to the politics of it. And 
I think, I'm going to say sadly, I think, I think sadly, I think you're a little accurate in that there were maybe assumptions made within the Democratic Party about gender and race and what may appeal to the independent voter or the voters that were Obama Trump for the very narrow segment that that is in America, that the best way to appeal to those constituents to move them back to being Democrats was to let's, let's remove gender and race, but certainly Joe Biden is still race and he's still gendered. He is both white, right? He is white and a man. So uh, I think that there were po possibly by some voters, right? Because the Democratic Party is what? People who went to the polls and they chose him in the primary. But it's possible that that was part of the calculation, um, right? Because a lot of the, the, the polling data during the primary was like people wanted someone who, on the Democratic side, right? People who wanted someone who was gonna beat Donald Trump. Like that was the number one, if I remember right, that was the number one issue, if that's an issue, issue that why, why people were choosing Joe Biden. And then you can kind of figure out like, well, he's more of a moderate, he's not a progressive, right? He's no Elizabeth Warren, he is no Bernie Sanders. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I think that that's possible. I can't, you know, I can't say for sure because I can't get in everyone's head, but, um, but I think that's an unfortunate possible, you know, unfortunate calculation because that just reads mm -hmm. of, you know, sexism and um, racism and, you know, about all the different kind of stereotypes about what would, what would a candidate look like, right? What does that candidate look like to go up against Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, on a more positive note, <laughs> um, I just want to end with, you know, your own background and, you know, how you how you really got to Chatham and, and what it's mean, meant for you to sort of go on this on this journey. And you've seen so many different things happen in politics and, you know, just, you know, summarizing your own background and connection with politics even before you came to Chatham. Well, I mean, I'm a native Pittsburgher. Um, I grew up in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. And I would just say, I mean, from a young age, um, particularly my, my dad in particular, um, he was in a labor union, is in a labor union, and always talked politics to me, to my mom, but mostly me. Um, my brother, I don't think, cared as much. So I, um, he didn't get to hear as much of it. So um, I don't know, we just, I heard a lot about it. I remember watching my very first political debate um, in the 80s, it was a Bush Dukakis debate. And, and then as I grew a little older in high school, I started to learn more about feminist politics and women's movement and did some digging sort of on my own about these things. And it just really spoke to me. I just, even like, I think probably from hearing from my dad um, in the labor union and the politics of that and, and kind of learning about justice and injustice kind of early on. And, but then I kind of moved it more towards um, gender politics and went to college and 
I think every summer in between, this is important probably for your younger audience. I, I think this is in the 90s too, so like a long time ago. I had an internship every summer, I believe, um, during my college years that was focused on politics or public policy. Um, like the first one I kind of just like made up on my own. I remember going to my state rep's office and I was, you know, working at a fast food place, but I wanted for money, right? And I, but I wanted experience. They were like, well, we can't pay you, but if you want to come into the office 10, 15 hours a week, we'll show you this or whatever. Um, and we'll take you to meetings and you get to, you know, here with the state reps hearing kind of thing. Um, and so I kind of invented that on my own. I remember my very first year in college. So a little bit of a one trick pony. I kind of really knew what I wanted to study. I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I didn't totally know what I wanted to be when I grow up. I probably still don't because I hope I still have a few decades left. But, um, and then when I graduated and I worked on some political campaigns, I actually realized I was missing scholarship. I was missing literature and then decided to pursue a PhD. And so the center for me actually is this wonderful place of both um, theory and practice coming together. So I'm still exposed to a lot of scholarship. It's incumbent upon me to know the latest scholarship, but at the same time, I have an opportunity to work with young people and learn about their passions and to support them along their own public leadership pathway and extend that to the community as well to include women in like the, you know, basically across the Commonwealth. So that's it. Yeah, that's incredible. That's, and, and it's, um, those internship experiences, like even just following a council person or a Congress, Congress person around is so important. And that's what I've, like, I remember when my first internship was that as well. So that's so significant. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say to people watching, um, especially young women who are interested in this field? Um, I would encourage you to follow your passion truly and what I mean by that is, you know, kind of don't let anything get in your way. You know, I truly like in the 90s, internships weren't entirely a thing. Um, I don't even know if I called it that um, when I asked my state rep. I mean, I think you have the opportunity to call up any state rep that you want, right? Um, and say that you want to shadow them or your congressperson or you know, and use, if you're in college, utilize the resources, reach out to your alumni network. That's what, I mean, I've just learned that once, as a younger person, a lot of folks are willing to extend their hand. Um, and so use, use that. And, and the center is here for you. I mean, I just want to, you know, the PCWP at Chatham's campus, whether you're in Pittsburgh or in Scranton, we're happy to work with you and connect you to folks. Uh, the best that we can. That's incredible. I mean, thank you so much for um, taking the time and, and um, you know, really talking with us about the impact of women in politics and really what you do. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me.